open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7. We're going to read a big chunk of scripture. Um, and I'm just going to comment on it, but the scripture is so powerful. Most of it um, stands for on its own merit here without explanation. So I don't have any slides for you. Um, I'm reading from the ESV. If you have electronic Bibles or if you have paper Bibles, you're just going to have to figure it out. Um, so I'm going to start in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 11, and we're just going to read. Now, if perfection, say perfection. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. It is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. Say, indestructible life. What qualified Jesus to become a priest? He wasn't from the Levitical priesthood. He wasn't from the tribe of Levi. Well, according to this author, uh, it was an indestructible life. Verse 17, for it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. Say the law made nothing perfect. You catch what Paul is saying here, that the old law had to be set aside. There's a new priesthood, therefore there's a new law. That old law could not make anything per, uh, perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. We draw near to God through a different way, not rules and regulations and the law. Verse 20. And it was not without an oath for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one, speaking of Jesus, was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. The, the Levitical priests were qualified by their bloodline by their bodily descent, by their, GNA, by their DNA, Jesus was qualified by having an indestructible life. The law made nothing perfect and needed to be set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, according to this scripture, so that we can draw near to God a better way. The Levitical priests were born into their priesthood and there was no oath associated with it. On the other hand, Father God made an oath and he swore on himself that he would make Jesus a priest forever and his mind would not be changed. Verse 22. 
This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. It's guaranteed. Guaranteed. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives or exists forever to make intercession for them. Now, here's one of the things that I want to challenge your thinking in this morning. This statement that he lives to make intercession. We think, or I've been taught, and most people think, that that means Jesus is at the right hand of the Father praying for us. And I personally do not believe that is what this is saying. I think we're missing something actually a little more powerful. Um, I don't think that, you know, God and uh, the Father and Jesus are up there seeing the same thing, knowing the same thing, having the same exact will, and then Jesus saying, Father, would you please bless them? Okay. Father, please grow them in character. Okay. Father, please protect them. Okay. I don't think he's just saying, okay, 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 because Jesus is only praying things that are in the will of the Father for us, right? So I don't think it's he's just, yes, yes, Jesus, yes, Jesus, yes, Jesus. Well, I wasn't going to, Jesus, but since you said it, I'm going to. That would make the Father and the Son have two different wills. And that makes them unequal. That makes them not the same being. That that destroys the Godhead. It's actually heresy. They are the same in character, in nature. They are completely unified in will, in desire, in nature. They're in complete agreement. So I don't think Jesus is there, uh, you know, that, that, that it's a prayer thing like that. I don't think it looks like that. Intercession often in the Bible does not mean prayer. When you look up all the scriptures on intercession, it actually means to come between somebody. So if you were to see a little kid walking across the street and a car heading towards them and you ran and you grabbed them and pulled them out of the way, you just made intercession. You came between that child and that car. Had nothing to do with prayer. You interceded. You came between. You can even intercede in bringing two parties together. So it can be keeping things apart or pulling things together. That's what intercession uh, is most often translated in the Bible. So, uh, I on Wednesday night, I told the story, true story, a mission story called uh, The Peace Child. It's a book that a missionary wrote, and uh, I can't remember where he was a missionary, but this missionary moved to a jungle tribe, and true story, these uh, jungle tribes were at war with each other, and there would be midnight raids and very bloody, very violent, and uh, he figured out eventually that their highest value was deceit and betrayal, like trickery. If you could trick somebody, then, man, you were smart. You were intelligent. 
And they would sometimes spend years befriending somebody just to stab them in the back, just to portray them. And one story was that there was a, a warring tribe across this big river, and these two fishermen from different tribes were fishing, and they were talking to each other. You know, they were enemies, mortal enemies. But they saw each other fishing all the time, and they spoke for years and years and years. And he eventually convinced the one guy to come over to his side, and they ate a meal together and spent months and months and convinced this guy, hey, we're friends, we're nice, we're not going to hurt you. And they, he invited them to a village feast, and they killed him and ate him. And they were celebrating, oh, we're so smart, we're so awesome. He totally believed and was fooled and thought that we were his friends. They spent years trying to pull that trick. So this missionary learned their language, and he told them, I'm here to learn your language so that I can tell you the story of the greatest man who ever lived. And the day came when finally he preached the gospel to them and told them the story of Jesus and his signs and wonders and his miracles and his betrayal and how he went to the cross and he rose from the dead and he preached the gospel to them. And at the end, they all came up to him and they said, oh, thank you so much. Now we know why you would spend all this time learning our language and coming from your country to tell us about the, this, this man who was so amazing and wonderful. Thank you for telling us about Judas. They thought he was the hero of the story because their highest value was betrayal. Betrayal. And this missionary was horrified. He just converted a whole village and spent years learning their language. He converted them to be followers of Judas. And they loved Judas and thought he was great and, you know, celebrated Judas. And he said, oh, God, what did I do? How do I fix this? And he did not know how to fix it. He could not convince these people that Jesus was actually the hero of the story. But the warring kept getting more and more violent, increasingly violent, to the point where the tribe, the leaders of the tribes realized we actually can't continue killing each other. But there's so much hatred, so much animosity, so much mistrust that we can't stop killing each other. And so they just thought, uh, what are we going to do? How are we going to do this? Because if we keep doing what we're doing, we're going to wipe ourselves off the planet. And they wanted to live. And so they finally figured out the only way that they were going to be able to stop warring is if they traded children. So whenever the chief of the tribe had a child, he would give that child to the warring tribe and vice versa. And they would trade royal children, so to speak. That way, the, the other tribe would raise them as their own, and they would end up having grandkids. And that way, if one tribe went to war against another, they'd literally be killing their own flesh and blood. And that's how the tribes figured out that they could create peace and stop the war between the tribes. And they called the children that they would give, or the child that the 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 tribal leader, the king, would give to his enemy the peace child. Hence the name of the book, The Peace Child. And this missionary all of a sudden realized, oh, aha. And he called the village back together, and he said, 
We were at war with God. We were his enemies. But he loved us. So he sent, he gave his peace child to us. And they said, oh, Jesus is the peace child. He is our peace. And they all ended up accepting Christ and realizing that Jesus was the hero. Here's the point of my story. That child that was given to the warring tribe stopped the war. That peace child was the intercession, was the, the, the thing that came between these two warring tribes that brought them together, that actually brought peace. The children didn't need to pray for peace. The children didn't need to do any type of praying. Their life was an intercession. Do you see how that works? In Genesis uh, chapter 15, God made a covenant with Abraham. And if you haven't heard this or understood this, the way they used to make covenants in, in uh, those days, the days of Abraham, you would have small families that would maybe be uh, farmers or shepherds and, and have flocks and things, and they were powerless against armies and foreign kings. And so families would make covenants together to band together to be stronger, to protect each other. But how do you guarantee that, that you're actually going to go to war? Like, hey, if my family gets attacked, what's to guarantee you're going to put your life on the line to protect my family? Well, this is how they would make a covenant. They would take an animal or animals, they would cut them lengthwise in half, put one half on one side, one half on the other, and they would make a trail of blood. And it actually represented the birth canal. And one family would stand on one side, and one family would stand on the other side. And the leaders of those families would walk the birth canal and would be born into the opposite family, into the other family. It was a way that they would signify, your family is my family. We are one family now. And you see this in Genesis 15. God says, Abraham, I'm going to make a covenant with you. Cut these animals up. And it says he put one on the right and one on the left. And there was a cow and a goat and a, uh, a sheep and a couple birds. And he cut them in half and he made this path. And the crows were coming trying to eat the carcasses. And he's waving them off. And as soon as darkness fell, the Lord put Abraham to sleep. And then a flaming torch on one side and a smoking pot on the other. And they went down the trail of blood opposite each other. The Lord was fulfilling both sides of the covenant because he knew the weakness of man. Abraham could not fulfill his side of the covenant. So he stood as himself God and he stood as himself man or as man, as Abraham. And he cut the covenant with himself. And he said, now your destiny is my destiny. Your problems are my problems. My resources are your resources. We are one family. We're in this together. That's intercession. Jesus is our intercession. He is our peace child. He is God and man in one, making, fulfilling the covenant between himself. Yeah, it's amazing. 
And you see this. This is what John is seeing when he looks up into heaven. Jesus said, I am the door. I am the gate. It's one word in Greek. And then when, Jesus, when John looks up into heaven and he hears a voice saying, come up here, he sees a door open in heaven. Jesus said, I'm the door, and there's a door wide open in heaven. And what does he see on the throne? He sees a lamb that's slain, but also a lion at the same time on the throne. Jesus, as the, the eternal lamb with scars in his hands, is the mediator. He's the come-between. He's the bridge. He, he is intercession itself. He doesn't need to pray. He is God and man brought together. He's intercession itself. And that's what John sees. <gasps> a lion and a lamb in one. Man and God together in one. He always lives. So that scripture right there. Verse 25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost. Those who draw near to God through him since he always lives. And we think that word always means you know, when we get in fights with our spouses, we say, well, you always do that. Well, you always say that. Well, you're always angry. Well, you're always whatever, right? So we think of it, you're always doing something. But in the Greek, it means exists forever. In other words, since he exists forever as intercession, as intercession, as the come between, we cannot gaze towards heaven. We cannot gaze at the life of Jesus. We cannot gaze at the incarnation or the cross or the resurrection or the ascension. We cannot gaze on him and not see God and mankind reconciled. You cannot gaze at him and not see yourself and God reconciled. He is intercession. He exists forever, he will always have scars. From now until eternity, Jesus will always have scars. From now until eternity, he's going to look like the lamb who was slain and the lion forever and ever and ever. He exists forever as our intercession. Let's keep reading on. Hebrews 8.1. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law, they serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Moses gazed up into heaven, and he saw in heaven a temple. And so he just copied everything on earth, just like he saw in heaven. See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. 
But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. Why is there, why did there have to be a new covenant made that worked differently? Why? He just said it. They did not continue in my covenant. <laughs> they couldn't. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. The fault was not the law. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. The fault was in the people's ability to keep it. So the first covenant had a fault, the weakness of men. The weakness of men. We were too weak to stay faithful. We were too weak to stay in relationship because our sin causes shame and shame causes fear and fear it causes distance and relationship. We we were we couldn't stay righteous. And it's not because God can't stand to be around sinners. That's actually not true. But uh, there's lots of proof about that. And maybe we'll talk about that some other day if you have any doubts. But in order for God to heal the world, he must heal the men of sinning. He must heal the women of sinning against each other and against God. That's the only way he can heal the world. He had to make a covenant that would work. The old covenant wouldn't work. Why? Because you can't keep your end of the bargain and I can't keep my end of the bargain. So God had to do something completely different that took our weakness and our frailty and our sin out of the equation. Just like he put Abraham to sleep and said, you go to sleep. Yeah, I'm going to take care of this. I can handle this without you. And Abraham woke up and boom, he was one with God. He had a covenant with God. And if anyone attacked Abraham, they attacked God and God went after him. And if anyone uh, blessed Abraham, they blessed God. And if anyone stole from Abraham, they stole from God and he was going to come after them. What did Abraham do? He went to sleep. <laughs> it was God. We were asleep. We were asleep. We woke up to the revelation of the gospel, and it was already finished. It was already done. That's pretty incredible, really. Verse 10, for this is the covenant. Oh, sorry, I just read that. My bad. Verse 13, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. Did you hear that? The first one is obsolete. Following God, trying to get to God by following rules and regulations and your own strength is obsolete. It's erased. It's done. It's over. It's finished. God did something new that works, that is guaranteed, right? Because the last one didn't work. This is what the author of Hebrews is saying. It didn't work. It couldn't work because of us. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. The author of Hebrews is saying, 
It's old. It's worn out. There's holes in your jeans, and it's so bad you can't fix them. They're about to be thrown in the trash. That's what he said. Nine, skip down to 9, 1, chapter 9, verse 1. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared. So that earthly place of holiness is the Holy of Holies. For a tent was prepared. The first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence, it is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, and uh, by the way, today is Yom Kippur at sundown, so this is when that would happen, the high priest going in on that day. Uh, I didn't preach this because it's Yom, Yom Kippur, but it just happens to be. By this, so listen to this, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. Verse 8, by this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. Did you catch that? Maybe I should read it again. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the Holy of Holies is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. So he's saying that the the inner court, I guess you would say, where the they sacrifice the animals and the bread of the presence. That first section, as long as it's still standing, that means the way into the Holy of Holies isn't open yet. It's not open yet. But when that gets removed, the way is opened. And he said, so that inner, the unbe beyond the first curtain represents the present age. So he's not talking about our age. He's talking about the age in which he wrote this letter, in which he wrote this letter before A.D. 70. He's saying this old thing is about to vanish. It's about to go away. It's worn out. God's getting rid of it. But as long as that first section is there, the way to the Holy Holies, Holy of Holies is not open yet. I mean, that's pretty amazing. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time, until the time of reformation, until the time of of reformation. The inner court is still standing. Nope, it's not. Is the temple in Jerusalem there? Nope, 
It's not. In 70 A.D., it was taken out of the way. The veil was torn at Jesus' death. So there was an overlap, a 40-year overlap-ish, 40-ish, from the time that Jesus made the way open and the time that the temple and all the sacrifices and all the rituals, they're not doing those things anymore, was taken away. And according to the Apostle Paul, that's who wrote this, he's saying that is a sign that the way into the Holy of Holies is open forever. That first court is gone. It's gone. We'll keep reading, then I'll comment in a sec. Skip down to verse 23. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. He basically went on to say that Moses took blood and just threw it all over everything and all over everybody. And that's how you sanctified stuff. Everything got bloody. Like, how would you like that? He took water and hyssop, and then the people stood before him, and he just went, just chucking blood at them, you know, getting splattered with blood. Now we're holy. All right? He just said that. So thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, listen to this very carefully, just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once, to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. There's three things here, three things. When Jesus was on the cross on earth, he was on the altar as the lamb in the heavenly temple at the same exact time. Because those things on earth were copies of the real thing. When he was on the cross on earth, if you could gaze into heaven, he would have been on the altar as a lamb being slain for us. That's what this is saying. Two, the fact that he died once means it worked forever. It means it worked. It wasn't temporary. It worked forever. Three, that verse we read, it is appointed for men to die once, and after that the judgment so, or in like manner, Christ died once, then does he bring judgment? No, he comes and rescues those who are waiting for him. Men who don't know God, they're going to die once, and they're going to get judged. Men who are in Christ, women who are in Christ, we die once, but Jesus died once, and then he comes and rescues us from judgment. He comes and saves us. 
There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no judgment coming for us. We've been saved from that judgment. That scripture is true, but we take it out of context. We don't put it in that context of what it means. It means there's no judgment for you. Because Christ died once on your behalf. <laughs> now he's going to come rescue you, not judge you. It's amazing. Hebrews 10.1. I'm almost done. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, which we have, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, it can never, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. What is the author here juxtaposing? That old system, that old law, could never make anybody perfect. What's he implying? The new way? The new covenant? The new thing God has done? Has made you perfect. Verse 2, otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered? He's saying if it actually worked, if, if those Old Testament sacrifices actually made you perfect, then they would have happened once and they would stop and they'd say, you're done, you're perfect. But they didn't, they kept going. So it proves they weren't perfect. It proves it was temporary. Proves it was makeup on the pig. Right? But he's saying, Jesus died how many times? Once. Therefore, it worked. Therefore, you're made perfect. Let me read it again, verse 2. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, say, once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. Having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. That is a radical, radical statement. If I made it up, you'd probably stone me to death for heresy. But it's right there in your Bible. <laughs> no more consciousness of sins. What does that mean? Does that mean that the Holy Spirit never convicts us of when we sin? No, he does convict us when we sin. What's he saying? What God wants in these sacrifices, his ultimate goal is to perfect you and I and to remove our sin consciousness and our guilt and our shame from us once and for all, forever and ever and ever. Because when we are sin conscious, we are afraid of God. Even just a little bit. We're afraid of love. Pure love is scary. When you look at purity and you know you're dirty. You ever been outside working in the garden and you like have dirt all over you? Or I was doing drywall in my bathroom. And you, when you sand drywall, it just cakes you. 
with, it looks like you rolled around in white flour, right? I was caked in white flour, and I literally couldn't touch anything. I couldn't sit down. I couldn't touch anything. I couldn't hardly open my door because whatever I touched, I just caked with this white powder that was all over me. And that's how sin works. When we have a sin consciousness, we're, we just don't want to go around anything that's clean. God has to get rid of that. So how can he do that? Not through the old way. Not through anything that has to do with you or me because we can't do it. He has to put us to sleep and do it for us and then wake us up and say, hey, look what I did. Look what I did. We gaze into heaven and we see, oh, I'm one with God. Oh, I've been made spotless. Oh, I've been made perfect. I'm completely accepted. I'm as close to God as any person can possibly get. Wow. That's amazing. It's crazy. It's amazing. Verse 3, but in these sacrifices, let me read verse 2 again, because this is important. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? That is what is supposed to happen when we believe the gospel. So I guess you could also say my consciousness of my sin, my shame, my guilt, my whatever, is equal to the amount that I'm believing the gospel. Right? I'm not supposed to have consciousness of sin. Verse 3, but in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. If we were to go back to the old covenant system, we were to go back to the Jewish calendar and do all the Jewish stuff, which there are some Christians doing that. This says, but in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. It's undoing what Jesus died on the cross to do. You catch that? Verse 4, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So again, three things. We were made perfect. We were made perfect. Say, I was made perfect. If you are a believer in Christ, you are perfect. That is an absolute true statement. does not matter how much it doesn't feel true. That is an absolute true statement. Can you make perfect any better? Are you sure? You can't make perfect better. So what are you trying to do? You can't make it any better. You woke up and you were perfect. So what are you trying to do? <laughs> Hopefully you're not trying to make yourself perfecter. Any attempt to make yourself per Well, let me say this. Why are you saying to yourself I'm so messed up if you're perfect? It's illegal to say that to yourself. I'm so messed up. That's illegal. You're playing the devil there in the garden. You're perfect. So you can't say that. I'm so messed up. Can't make perfect better. Any attempt to make ourselves better is a fleshly approach to the spiritual. Any attempt to make ourselves better 
is a fleshly approach to the spiritual because we've already been made perfect. You can't be perfecter. Right? We work from the top down. From the victory, from the top down, I am seated in Christ in heavenly places. And then we let that truth affect our life today. I am the righteousness of Christ. We let that trickle down into our character and our nature, into our identity, into our reality. I am more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus. Then we let that trickle into our daily battles. We work from the end backwards, from the top down, from the finished to the unfinished. We don't go bottom up. Every attempt to go bottom up. Every attempt to, as the scripture says, who's going to reach up into heaven and bring Christ down? Try and get closer to God. If you're one with him, can you get closer? No, you can't. The Bible doesn't have words to describe the closeness that you have with God. You can't get closer, just like you can't get perfected or perfecter. You can't get perfecter. You can't get closerer. You can't get closerer. You can't get one oneer. You can't get more one. <laughs> Two. We should no longer have any consciousness of sin. Three. The Jewish calendar and sacrificial system was to remind people of their sin. So I'm okay if you like believe in the holidays or do some things. But anything that undoes the work of Jesus in our hearts or minds is illegal for us. It's illegal for us. We just experienced the 10 days of awe on the Jewish calendar. If you think God has his ears more open to you in these 10 days than the 11th day before that, you have just undone some of what Christ did for you. Because you're one with him. He's not hearing you anymore during this, these calendar days. He's not hearing your repentance more. You know, during Ramadan, the Muslims believe that God will hear your prayer if you don't sin during Ramadan on the last day, the night of power. When you pray, God will really hear you if you didn't mess up in the previous Ramadan days. That's pagan stuff. That is pagan stuff. It completely undoes the incarnation and the finished work of Christ on the cross. It puts you back on earth. It puts God far away. And now God is leaning towards you on a special day. I'm really paying attention now. Which infers that the day before he wasn't really paying attention to you. And you weren't really that close to him. It is anti-gospel. It is amazing. I don't know about you, but I'm guilty. There's a lot of anti-gospel stuff sometimes that I go, wait, what am I doing? What am I doing? Trying to get perfecter. I have been made perfect. You have been made perfect. Sundown tonight is Yom Kippur. If you make today more magical, more special, more effective than what Jesus has accomplished, you're in error. Just going to say it. I'm in error. You're in error. There's nothing greater that has ever happened 
There's nothing greater that's ever going to happen than the incarnation, the death, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus Christ. He lives forever as our intercessor. Not because he's praying, because when I look at Jesus, I see me in God and God in me. Every time you look at him, you should see that. If you can't see that, you haven't come to a full revelation of the gospel yet. Thank you, Jesus. A couple more verses. Uh, Verse 11, chapter 10, verse 11. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time, for all time, a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. What has Jesus been doing since he ascended up into heaven after he rose from the dead? What has he been doing? He's been sitting, (laughs) waiting for every enemy of his to be under his feet. He's been sitting. His work is done. He's finished. He did it. He accomplished it. For by a single offering, verse 14, here's proof. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time, just like Jesus is our intercessor for all time. You are perfected for all time. That means every time. Every time. Those who are being sanctified. You've been made perfect. There's your verse. He sat down. His work is done. It's finished. The veil is torn. The way into the holy holies is open. In fact, Jesus carried you in there with him. If you don't see yourself at the right hand of the Father in Christ, you haven't fully realized the truth yet. Our conscience is clean. We are perfected forever. We don't have a sin conscience anymore. God does not remember your sins, and neither should you. It's finished. It's finished. The battle is to believe this. That is the battle. That always will be the battle. The battle is for faith. It's not you don't have to do anything. Jesus did it all for you. You're Abraham waking up, and God just fulfilled both sides of the covenant, finished it all, did it all for you. Now our jobs are just to believe. Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brothers, therefore, since all these things are true, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. I love that when Scott said, I'm going to wash you guys with the word. Our bodies are clean. Our hearts are clean. Our conscience should be clean. If it's not, you're not in agreement with God. Or you're actively sinning, which you are. Repent. He'll forgive you. And then you can forget it, just like God forgets it. 
we can come boldly before the throne of grace in full assurance of faith, coming before our daddy. That is good news. That is good news. When Jesus is banging his sword, the word of God, against the shield of faith, he's banging the word against faith, saying, come on, come on, come on, stand up, rise up, come on, army. You're my army. 